Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Log Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings, and welcome to another installment of the Just for Freedom of Space. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author, Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions. Yes, ma'am. Yes, I'm Queen Mother, Dr. DeLuise Blakely, and I'm the community mayor of Harlem. I first want to thank the Hamilton family for coming to Harlem yesterday. The question that I raise is this. Do you see another school of thought that relates to the life of Alexander Hamilton as an African, one drop of blood that was black? Since his mother was from Nevis, and you're talking about a mulatto child, and how will that be played out in history on the $10 bill toward reparations for African descendants, which I represent 50 million. Well, I, when I um, was researching the, the book, I spent an enormous amount of time investigating the question of whether uh, Hamilton was of mixed racial ancestry. Uh, certainly a lot of people in the Caribbean who are historically minded believe that, and certainly a lot of people in the African-American community uh, believe it. And it was something that I took uh, 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 seriously. I wasn't at all averse to the idea. In fact, I thought, hey, it would do wonders for race relations in this country if we had a founder who was of uh, mixed racial ancestry. But I couldn't find any evidence for it. Um, I did actually consult uh, a couple of uh, famous geneticists in terms of whether Uh, a lock of uh, Hamilton's hair could determine his racial identity. They said not conclusively. Uh, I actually found that encouraging that in genetic terms, race was such an elusive Mm -hmm. concept. Hamilton grew up, he spent his first 10 years on on Nevis, next seven or eight uh, years on St. Croix. These were islands that at various times had ratios of slaves to to free whites of uh, anywhere from five, 10 to one. Uh, so I had to assume, but like all historians, it's a, it's a tentative conclusion pending further evidence. I had to con- conclude that this was a presumption because the, it, it did, it did uh, um, come up. Unfortunately, it came up in the form of an accusation. It would come up in the form of a charge in anonymous newspaper articles that he was part black, you know, uh, and um, that... And it would periodically recur uh, throughout his his life. But I was forced to conclude, again, a provisional judgment, that um, there was a presumption that because he was illegitimate and because he was orphaned and from the Caribbean, that he was part black. And I have to say that in most cases, that assumption was true because there were so many illegitimate kids from the, uh, the Caribbean. But I honestly can't say that I found any uh, uh, evidence, and I went back into the history of his, um, of, of his family. So. We, are looking, we are looking for the DNA. That's what we are doing now. I'll, join you, in, I'll join you in the search for the DNA. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. On this side. That's where Hamilton's true paternity was. Yeah, um, you know, the, the, reason, yeah. the reason that I started with uh, talking about Hamilton in the West Indies is because I really do think that that helped to shape him at the very beginning of his life. And I think that he learned from that, and I think you can follow that influence 
for the rest of his life. You know, think about it. When he was starting the Manumission Society in New York, to whom was he appealing? His friends, his supporters. We're talking about business people who made their living in one way or another, directly or indirectly connected to the slave production or slave trading. He was not appealing to his supporters. And I mean, it seems to me you've got to give the man credit. He didn't have to do that. Oh, Jefferson said, I would do this, but it would, it would upset my neighbors. And we can understand it, it would upset his neighbors. But you know, Hamilton would upset his neighbors too. Yet he did it. And it seems to me that we, we need to recognize that. Uh, we don't go too far with this, but, but it, it is worth saying. And the thing is, it is hardly ever said. That's why I think it's important. Uh, the gentleman here. Professor Horton, just um, the mic is not doesn't seem to be working. Try, try okay. it again. Oh. Test it. Um, excuse me. Yes, you're okay. working. As a follow-up to what Professor Horton just was mentioning, could you talk a little bit about the process by which slavery was ended in New York and what extent uh, Hamilton played a role in that? Sure. Well, slavery was ended in New York uh, gradually. Uh, in, the, in the early years of the, 20, uh, of the uh, 19th century, um, there was real, and, and the late years of the 18th century, there was real pressure to end the institution. But, of course, New York was a major slave-holding area, New York City particularly. The Hudson River Valley was one of the only two places in the north where you had real plantations, Narragansett region of Rhode Island and the Hudson River Valley. These are real plantations equivalent to some of the plantations in the south. So, so slavery was a major institution here. And the, those like Hamilton put pressure, which resulted in the passage of a gradual emancipation uh, law, where uh, slaves, as they reached a certain age, would come out of slavery. And in fact, slavery wasn't actually abolished in New York State until the middle 1820s. But th the fact is that the process was set into motion by Hamilton and his generation. And, uh, and that, that I think is significant. And again, I want to stress that that was not an easy thing to do in New York at the time. Well, but it's interesting to note that uh, New York was the s second to the last of the states to abolish slavery, uh, finally. New Jersey, not until the 1840s. And it's important to remember that up until the Civil War, many northern states allowed southerners to bring southern slaves into the states for a period of nine months to a year. Uh, and they wouldn't be freed if you returned to the south with your slave before that expiration. And remember... Pennsylvania already had such a law when Washington was president, and he was very concerned about his black servants that he had brought from Virginia, that they would, if he didn't take them back, they'd qualify for freedom under Pennsylvania law. Well, you know, it was New Jersey actually set their emancipation laws into motion in the early part of the 19th century. It's just that it was gradual yeah, emancipation. Yeah, that's right. That's you know, true. little known fact at the time of the... Uh, 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery generally in the nation, there were still 13 or 16 slaves in New Jersey so, and who, that were freed technically by the 13th Amendment. So that, you know, this is a, a, a process. But the fact is that to set the process into motion, there were commitments to the founding principles. And that, I think, obviously is something that we ought to pay attention to. That's where, that's where uh, Hamilton... Uh, comes in and he does it. He does a decent job at that point. One one more detail supporting your point that this was hard, uh, and this appears in the minutes of the Manumission Society. That early on there's a committee of three. Uh, it's Hamilton. It's Robert Troop. I forget the third guy, and they present to their um, fellows a, a recommendation that all members of the Manumission Society free their own slaves. <laughs> this doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Well, maybe we should give them some credit. They were setting in motion a process. But, yeah. but, but here again, uh, Hamilton is ahead of the curve, even in this group, which is itself ahead of the curve. Yeah. Lest, lest we be too smug in New York City, understand that New York City debated secession from the United States at the time just before the, the American Civil War. Um, the gentleman uh, with the blazer and the tie there. 
Those of us who um, subscribe to the view that the Hamiltonian vision of um, economic opportunity, uh, economic liberty, was preferable to the more static Jeffersonian view, and that this view indeed was carried forward by the Northern Whigs and Abraham Lincoln in the original Republican Party. Nevertheless, are a little concerned about one episode from Hamilton's career, uh, and this is on the subject of something that Professor Horton mentioned, the upstate manners. Of course, the Schuyler family had one of the bigger ones. It's my understanding that these upstate manners, and I don't know how many slaves actually worked on them, were mainly run by white indentured tenant farmers who were basically living in a form of peonage in the sense that if they couldn't pay their annual rent on their land, the sheriffs would come in and auction all their personal property and they would be destitute. And in the 1830s, of course, long after Hamilton was dead, there was an uprising called the Anti-Rent Wars and the New York Constitution was amended and so on and so forth. But, according to my information, Hamilton, acting on behalf of his in-laws, drafted up some of the early laws or contractual provisions or even constitutional provisions that perpetuated this land tenancy system in upstate New York, and would any of you like to comment on that? Yeah, let me comment on that uh, uh, briefly. Um, the system was in place uh, long before Hamilton was born and came here. I mean, this goes back goes back to the Dutch system, and then it goes back to what the English set up as soon as they got the place. And, um, you know, as has been said before, Hamilton was not the perfect man, and he didn't lead any rent revolts against the Schuylers or the Van Rensselaers or anyone like that. What he did do was uh, there was an instance where it was going to be expanded into Vermont. You know, and this was a very prickly situation. New Yorkers had a lot of land claims in Vermont, uh, and uh, they wanted to extend uh, their whole system to, to what is now a state. But, but they had claims on significant chunks of Vermont. The Vermonters, not surprisingly, didn't want any part and parcel of the New York system, which, as you say, was, was very retrograde, very feudal. And uh, one of the New Yorkers uh, who opposed his own state's effort to uh, imperialize Vermont was Hamilton. And he said... You know, he said, look, uh, let's be realistic. It, it is not, it is a separate society. They don't like us. They don't like the laws we have. It's going to be a hornet's nest. We just, we just don't want to get into this. And, and cooler heads prevailed and New York didn't get into it. So I think he deserves some credit for um, not making the problem bigger. Uh, we have time for one more question. Uh, Whatever understanding may have been manifested by any person, however distinguished, other than the 39 fathers who framed the original Constitution. And for the same reason, I have also admitted whatever understanding may have been manifested by any of the 39 even on any other phase of the general question of slavery. If we should look into their acts and declarations on those other phases as the foreign slave trade, and the morality and policy of slavery generally, it would appear to us that on the direct question of federal control of slavery in federal territories, the 16, if they had acted at all, would probably have acted just as the 23 did. Among that 16 were several of the most noted anti-slavery men of those times. Dr. Franklin, Alexander Hamilton, and Governor Morris. While there was not one now known to have been otherwise, unless it be John Rutledge of South Carolina. The sum of the whole is that of our 39 fathers who framed the original Constitution, 21, a clear majority of the whole, certainly understood that no proper division of local from federal authority nor any part of the Constitution forbade the federal government to control slavery in the federal territories. 
while all the rest probably had the same understanding. (laughs) Such unquestionably was the understanding of our fathers who framed the original Constitution, and the text affirms that they understood the question better than we. But so far, I've been considering the understanding of the question. Okay. We're now going to play the last clip of Professor Joanne Freeman. This clip is 32 minutes. And enjoy the show. If you have any questions, always give us an email. Contact us at www.blackhistoryuniversity.com. Thank you. Reinterpreting the Burr-Hamilton duel, William and Mary, quarterly, 1996. Professor Freeman has advised and appeared on a number of television documentaries, including The Duel, The American Experience, PBS, and Founding Brothers, History Channel. She is a distinguished lecturer for the Organization of American Historians and serves on the advisory board of the Society for Historians of the Early American Republic and the International Center for Jefferson Studies. She is currently working on a book about political violence and the culture of Congress in antebellum America. Ms. Freeman has just returned, last night in fact, from St. Croix, where she participated in a four-day Hamilton commemoration. Please welcome Professor Joanne Freeman. say that after studying and writing about the Burr-Hamilton duel for a good number of years, it's a great honor and really a thrill to be standing here in Weehawken talking to you about the duel at this bicentennial commemoration. Over the years, I've had a number of interesting approaches to studying this duel. I've watched reenactments before today's fine reenactment, and in one case, I actually managed to stand close enough to the action to be splattered by Hamilton's blood, which is really getting up close and personal with your historical subject. On another occasion, I had the opportunity to shoot a black powder dueling pistol. Now, of course, thanks to the policeman who was supervising my target practice, which I have to say was pretty dismal, um, I was wearing ear shields and plastic goggles, which took something away from the historical accuracy of the moment. (laughs) But still... Um, It was an amazing opportunity to get some small sense of the physical sensation of firing a dueling pistol. Well, today I will be talking about this most famous duel in American history, the duel between Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr, a duel in which the Vice President of the United States killed one of the nation's leading founders. Now, because it's so famous, the Burr-Hamilton duel is often treated as if it were the only political duel in American history, a -a one-of-a-kind incident. And for that reason, it's remained largely a mystery. Questions about the Burr-Hamilton duel abound. Why did Hamilton agree to fight? Why didn't he just say no? Why was Burr so intent on fighting Hamilton? What was the mysterious insult that caused Burr to initiate the duel in the first place? Faced with two men who made a seemingly irrational decision to shoot at each other on a dueling ground at dawn, most scholars have decided that there can't be a logical explanation, attributing the duel to irrational emotion. Hamilton must have been suicidal, Burr must have been a bloodthirsty, revenge-hungry murderer. Well, today I'm going to go beyond such non-explanations and really try to get to the root of the Burr-Hamilton duel by studying it in the context of its time. Because regardless of what we think about dueling, Burr and Hamilton considered it logical. Like hundreds and hundreds of other politicians of the time, they reasoned their way onto a dueling ground. And so what I'm going to do today is try to climb into their heads and reveal their logic and explore the real purpose and significance of dueling to early national politicians. Now, one of the first things that you really have to grapple with when you're talking about any duel is the concept of honor in the early national period. 
Any gentleman of the period considered his honor and his reputation to be his most valued possessions. To be dishonored was to lose your sense of self, your manhood, your status, to be ashamed to face your family and friends. Hamilton had imbibed this concept by the age of 14, as revealed in the first letter of his that's in existence. Writing to a friend, and again, this is the age of 14, it's a really amazing letter. Desperate to make a name for himself, he wrote, first he says, my ambition is prevalent, and then he says, I would willingly risk my life, though not my character, his reputation, to advance himself in the world. Honor was even more important for politicians who based their careers on public opinion. In early national America, it was character and reputation that qualified you for public office, not job skills or talent. Elections went to the man with the best reputation, the man who the public most respected. So to get voted into office, to get your friends into office, or to exercise any kind of power or influence, you had to have the right sort of reputation. So for an early national politician, honor was more than a vague sense of self-worth. It represented his ability to prove himself a deserving political leader. Now, among men who were so touchy about their reputations, rules of behavior and etiquette became very important. And this makes sense, where insults can carry such grave consequences. Where the wrong word might lead to the dueling ground, there have to be very clearly defined rules and standards so that accidental insults and violence can be avoided. The rules of honor set out clear standards of conduct, words to avoid, actions to avoid, and when a line was crossed and honor was offended, the code of honor offered a regulated way of settling the dispute, hopefully with negotiations, but sometimes with gunplay on a dueling ground. For example, there were a number of what I like to call alarm bell words that you could never use in relation to another gentleman. Words like liar, coward, Rascal, which has kind of lost a little of its modern sting, I think. <laughs> Scoundrel. And then my personal favorite dueling word, puppy. <laughs> it's really lost its zing, I think. But you never want to call another gentleman a puppy. <laughs> Don't know why you would want to, really, but you shouldn't. Everyone knew that insulting a man with one of these words was as good as challenging him to a duel. And in a sense, it was a kind of a dare that demanded a response. To ignore it would really be to dishonor yourself. Now, let's look at one of these words in action. In 1797, Hamilton and James Monroe, future President James Monroe, became involved in a controversy. Hamilton believed that Monroe had leaked some damaging information to the press. Outraged, he went to Monroe's house to demand an explanation, and luckily Monroe had a friend present who recorded the conversation. It's a great thing because you rarely get to see what these people were really behaving like in conversation, and here you have someone transcribing a conversation, and among other things, you see that Hamilton was a very persistent speaker, and so Monroe keeps trying to interrupt him, and every time he's interrupted, Hamilton goes right back to the beginning of what he's saying and starts again because he wants to go from start to finish. So here we have Hamilton and Monroe talking to each other, they hated each other, so things didn't start out very well. And after some rather terse conversation with Hamilton repeating himself again and again, getting redder and redder in the face, Monroe getting icier and icier, Hamilton finally just came out and accused Monroe of leaking the information. When Monroe denied it, Hamilton said, and his word choice is really key here, this, as your representation, is totally false. Now, he's being really careful with his words here because he's essentially saying to Monroe, you're lying, but he never uses the L word. However, what happened at this moment is fascinating because to Monroe and Hamilton, it was so clear, even with the careful wording, that a line had been crossed, that as soon as the words came out of Hamilton's mouth, both men jumped to their feet because now <laughs> they knew they were involved in an affair of honor. And Monroe responded by taking Hamilton's dare and pushing it one step further, saying, Do you say I represented falsely? You are a scoundrel. Ooh, the S word. So Hamilton responded, as any man of honor would, and said, I will meet you like a gentleman, meeting ready to duel when you are. At which point Monroe replied, I am ready, get your pistols. And literally they had to be pulled apart by their friends at this point, who tried to calm them down. Now, that's a lot faster than most honor disputes unfolded. And the two men obviously lost their tempers, and that was not really how a man of honor was supposed to behave. Most honor disputes were different and really followed predictable ritualistic steps. 
In a more conventional dispute, Hamilton would have written a sort of form letter to Monroe, and it would have included four basic statements. Number one, it would say, I've been told that you insulted me. Number two, it would repeat the insult very precisely. Number three, it would ask, is this account true or false? Fourth, it would say, do you have an explanation? And then fifth, it would demand an immediate response, typically by demanding, quote, the respect due to a gentleman and a man of honor. Now, if you received this kind of a letter, that's really an alarm bell, because that is saying the writer of the letter thinks that his honor has been offended and he's ready to fight. And you can see how it's a very carefully designed letter that gives the recipient a chance to explain himself, to deny the insult, or apologize, and very often that happened. But from that point on, as soon as you received that sort of a letter, you were engaged in an affair of honor, and your every word and action might result in a duel. This is typically the point where each man would appoint a second to represent him, a person who acted really as a sort of lawyer negotiating terms for his client, trying to appease the offended party without humiliating the offender. And negotiations could take days, weeks, or even months, as they did during the dispute between Hamilton and Monroe, after that little touchy incident between the two of them, for months, they wrote letters to each other, and basically each letter said, ready to fight when you are. <laughs> Neither one really wants to fight, but they don't want to back down, and so they kept just exchanging again and again and again this sort of, what do you think, kind of letters, and ultimately nothing happens, and each one thinks he was the brave one and the other guy was the coward, and that's the end of that dispute. The negotiating process was extremely important and extremely ritualized because it enabled those involved to display their honor, their superior character, by being calm, passionless, and even haughty in the face of death. Ideally, they allowed honor to be satisfied without any violence. The point of an affair of honor was to demonstrate your willingness to die for your honor, not necessarily to engage in gunplay. But sometimes negotiations weren't enough. Sometimes, when an offense was particularly serious, an offended man felt that the only way to redeem his honor would be to literally risk his life on the dueling ground, to prove his honor under fire. In such cases, to force his opponent into a duel, a seriously dishonored politician usually demanded a humiliating apology, so humiliating that no gentleman could offer it. And at this point, negotiations would stop and a duel would become the only alternative. But it's important to note that even at this point, even if you were destined for the dueling ground, the goal of a duel was not to kill your opponent, and particularly with political duels, which is what we're talking about today. Deaths were relatively rare in political duels, and wounds were usually not too serious. Leg wounds were particularly popular. <laughs> this is actually a wonderful newspaper editorial that says, you know, Mr. Smith fought a duel last week and received a wound in that fashionable part, the calf. <laughs> Frequent kind of a wound. The point of a duel was really to prove yourself willing to die for your honor, not to kill the man who dishonored you. And in fact, the duelist who killed his opponent often fell victim to such outrage that he had to flee the state. In many ways, a duelist who killed his opponent in the political realm was a failed duelist. He lost the duel because rather than redeeming his reputation, he had made it vulnerable and damaged it. Now, once you understand political dueling in this way, once you recognize that the letters and the negotiations are all part of an affair of honor, you discover that there were many, many, many more affairs of honor in early America than have ever been recognized before. For example, Hamilton fought at least 10 of these affairs of honor, duels without gunfire, before his duel with Burr. And I actually went through the 27 volumes of the Hamilton papers and looked for them and found these 10 incidents and was initially very surprised to keep finding more and more of them that really hadn't been recognized before because there was no gunplay involved. And one of these previous incidents had been with Burr. Burr actually insisted that twice before they'd almost duel, Hamilton acknowledged that maybe only once before they had almost dueled, but whether it's once or twice, Hamilton had found a way out. In New York City alone, in the 12 years surrounding the Burr-Hamilton duel, there were at least 17 other political duels, many of them interrelated. So in other words, the Burr-Hamilton duel wasn't a grand exception. It was part of a larger trend. When you look at all of these political duels together, you begin to see patterns. For example, most of them occurred shortly after an election. Most of them were deliberately provoked. A very common ploy was one man would call another a self-interested politician. You're a self-interested politician, and the only response to that is, you're a liar. You got a duel. <laughs> very effective. And in most cases in these provoked duels, the loser of an election 
or one of the friends of the loser would provoke the winner or one of the winner's friends into a duel. These duels didn't result from a slip of the tongue. In other words, many early American political duels were a sort of counter-election. A person who was dishonored by an election, his reputation damaged by an electoral loss, tried to redeem his reputation with a contest of honor, a duel. These political duels were not impulsive or irrational. They were not guided by uncontrolled suicidal impulses or murderous rage. American political duels were well-planned political messages synchronized with the political timetable. They were deliberate attempts to redeem an electoral loss and prove oneself eligible for future leadership. So with this understanding of political dueling, let's turn to the Burr-Hamilton duel. The year was 1804. Burr was vice president of the United States. His political career was looking grim because President Thomas Jefferson did not trust him, had cut him out of his administration, and aware that he wouldn't have a second chance at the vice presidency, yet still ambitious for a position of leadership, Burr naturally turned to state politics and decided to run for governor of New York, which was a really pivotal state that often decided the course of national elections and campaigns. Hamilton, at this point, was a practicing lawyer in New York City who had been unofficially ousted from his position as leader of the Federalists. By 1804, he had proven several times over that he could not control his pen or his mouth, having written several unwise pamphlets and said many unfortunate things that did nothing to help his career or his party, so that by 1801, he had been deemed, as one of his colleagues put it, quote, radically deficient in discretion. There's actually a, a really, they have a wonderfully diplomatic way of putting this at the time. There's a wonderful um, essay that he helped, uh, a school essay that he helped his son to draft, uh, in which he's talking about how really important it is to be able to be discreet. <laughs> he learned that the hard way. So he's not really politically active in 1804, but he came out of the shadows when he learned that the man he most distrusted in the world, Aaron Burr, was running for governor. By 1804, Burr and Hamilton had been political rivals for 15 years, a rivalry that resulted in part from their many similarities. And of course, whenever I say this, I, I sort of look for lightning to strike because Hamilton would not have considered himself similar to Burr and would probably challenge me to a duel for saying that here. But still, they were very similar men. They were very intense men. They were ambitious. They were flirtatious with women. They were competitive with men. They moved in the same social circles. They went to the same parties. They had many of the same friends. And they even invited one another to dinner parties on occasion. Sometimes they argued legal cases together as joint counsel. But there was one way in which the two men were different, or so Hamilton at least would have claimed. Hamilton was exceedingly ambitious. There was no denying that. But he was guided by his thirst for fame, which is a really distinctive thing in his 18th century world. It was a desire to win glory in the eyes of posterity. And the way that you did that was by serving the public good, usually by being a great statesman. So Hamilton was self-interested in the sense that he wanted fame and glory, but he knew that the best way to earn it was to achieve great acts of statecraft. Burr didn't really make any kinds of claims of that sort. He was certainly a man of honor, but he was more a creature of the moment. He was really sort of open to what was happening at the moment, able to respond to it. Um, someone who was wonderfully handy to have around when you were conducting politics in an age when many politicians were sort of bound in by these grand political battles of theory. Burr sort of seized on the moment and got things done. And many politicians at the time were really impressed and occasionally somewhat shocked at this sort of political efficiency. No, actually, there's even a wonderful quote where someone essentially says, wow, no pesky political principles. What a wonderfully useful person Burr is. He was just an actor as opposed to a sort of theoretician. This was terrifying to Hamilton. Burr was talented, charming, and as ambitious as Hamilton, but in Hamilton's eyes, he had no political restraints, no guiding star holding him back. In 1804, this fact, joined with the idea that Burr might be the leading politician in Hamilton's home state of New York, and that he would probably be supported by Hamilton's former Federalist friends, struck real terror into Hamilton's heart. And in fact, Hamilton feared that the op what he considered to be the opportunistic Burr, the grandson of the great New England theologian Jonathan Edwards, might use his ancestry, his credentials, and his power to make himself the leader of all of New England, goad the North to secede from the Union, and then sort of become the head of a, a new pseudo-nation. So to Hamilton, Burr had to be stopped for reasons both personal and political. 
So Hamilton really focused on opposing Burr's gubernatorial campaign, and he gave some rather fiery anti-Burr campaign speeches. A few of them are um, published in the Hamilton papers. The roots of the duel were at a dinner party in Albany, New York. Hamilton was there, as was this other Federalist named Charles Cooper, who described the party in a letter. And to paraphrase badly, Cooper said, you should have heard Hamilton speak about Burr over dinner. He said that Burr was a dangerous man who was not fit to hold the reins of government. I could detail to you a still more despicable opinion, which General Hamilton has expressed of Mr. Burr, Cooper continued, but I won't because many letters get stolen from the mail and printed in newspapers by political enemies. Right? Guess what happens, right? The letter's stolen. <laughs> it ends up in a newspaper. So Burr lost the gubernatorial election. It was not due really very much to Hamilton's opposition, but he was very humiliated by the loss. He'd essentially been ousted from the vice presidency. Now he'd been publicly voted not good enough to be governor. He began to feel really desperate to prove that he was still a deserving political leader, especially to his supporters who were now beginning to doubt him. Why cling to Burr as a leader if he could offer no patronage, no power, no influence? And some supporters actually said this quite literally. As one put it, very handily for a historian, Burr had to fight back somehow because, quote, if he tamely sat down in silence, what must have been the feelings of his friends? They must have considered him as a man not possessing sufficient firmness to defend his own character and consequently unworthy of their support. To prove himself a political leader, Burr had to redeem his reputation, and he was in this frame of mind when someone showed him Cooper's letter. Now, it's important to note that at this point, Burr was not thinking, I must slaughter Hamilton. Instead, he was thinking, I've been humiliated, my political career is dying, I have to prove my worth somehow, and now, here in my hand is authentic evidence of someone attacking my honor, and better yet, it's evidence of Hamilton attacking me, someone who's been doing this for the last 15 years. For Burr, defending his honor felt necessary. It made sense. Hamilton's specific insult made little difference. Burr just needed a way to prove his honor, and Hamilton's remarks were on paper at hand. It didn't matter if Burr did not know the precise despicable thing that Hamilton had said. He needed to defend his honor. Here was something in writing, so here was his chance. And here's the answer to one mystery that surrounds the duel. You know, what was the mysterious insult that caused Burr to challenge Hamilton? And people have come up with all kinds of alternatives, and the most popular one is that Hamilton accused Burr of incest, of sleeping with his daughter. Um, what's wonderful is that Gore Vidal openly acknowledges he made it up. Um, he made it up because he couldn't think of something, something bad enough to be said about somebody that would make him want to go into a duel. And so that was something that in his mind seemed duel-worthy. The fact is, as with many deliberately provoked duels, the precise insult was less important than Burr's chance to redeem his honor, though Burr would pay for this ambiguity in the long run. So Burr sent Hamilton this alarm bell letter that I just mentioned on June 18th, and it included the four key phrases four of the five key phrases at least. Number one, you insulted me. Number two, you said something still more despicable about me. Number three, is this true or false? Do you have an explanation? And then reply promptly as I deserve as a man of honor. So obviously Hamilton receives this letter and here's an obvious threat. But he was puzzled because Burr accused Hamilton of saying something despicable. And there was no specific insult for him to deny or explain. So to Hamilton, this supposed insult seemed too vague to merit a duel. Hamilton's response to Burr's letter reveals how torn Hamilton was between his need to face Burr's challenge and his real desire to avoid it. Trying to find a way out of the predicament, he began his letter with a long, tortured argument about the meaning of the word despicable. <laughs> it's a bad rhetorical choice. Basically, what does despicable mean anyway between gentlemen? To Burr, Hamilton's argument sounded like an evasive, insulting grammar lesson. Hamilton then concluded his letter with a burst of bluster to show that he was not afraid to duel if he had to. He wrote that he would not be held responsible for hearsay, and he was willing to face the consequences for his actions, a statement that, to Burr, seemed arrogant to the extreme. Needless to say, Burr's response to Hamilton's letter was quick and sharp. He said that the letter revealed, quote, nothing of that sincerity and delicacy which you profess to value. In other words, you're not behaving like a gentleman, a highly offensive insult that Hamilton couldn't ignore. So now Hamilton felt insulted and could not back down. Burr felt insulted and more insistent on fighting. And though Hamilton eventually offered something of an explanation stating that his insult was not intended to be really personal, 
Burr was so insulted by that point that he felt that nothing but a trip to the dueling ground could really redeem his honor, so on June 26th, he did what any grievously dishonored gentleman would have done. He demanded an apology that was so humiliating that it would force Hamilton to fight. He insisted that Hamilton apologize for anything that he had said that was derogatory to Burr's private character from throughout their 15-year rivalry. Obviously, Hamilton will not deliver that kind of an apology. So as Burr expected, Hamilton refused the apology, and Burr then issued a form, formal challenge and challenged him to a duel, and Hamilton accepted. But Hamilton had one final decision to make. He wasn't sure if he would shoot at Burr. Shooting at a man did not seem like the Christian thing to do. The night before the duel, Hamilton made his choice. He would not fire at Burr, although he writes interestingly, he won't fire at Burr the first time they exchange fire. <laughs> But if they exchange fire a second time, he doesn't really say what he's going to do. Um, but as he explained to his second, Nathaniel Pendleton, he's not going to fire the first time, and this decision results from, quote, religious scruples, which could not be compromised. Aware that this would be a difficult decision for others to understand, for example, they might think he was suicidal, Hamilton decided to explain himself and defend his reputation one last time in a statement addressed to posterity, to be made public only in the event of his death. And in it, he acknowledged all of the reasons why he didn't want to duel, his family, his debts, his religious scruples, and his desire to live. He also explained why he felt compelled to fight. He had seriously insulted Burr, and he believed what he had said, so he couldn't apologize, particularly since Burr had insulted Hamilton during their negotiations. Most fundamental of all, he felt that, as he put it, all the considerations which constitute what men of the world denominate honor impressed on me, as I thought, a peculiar necessity not to decline the call. The ability to be in future useful in those crises of our public affairs which seem likely to happen would probably be inseparable from a conformity with public prejudice in this particular, which is a long way of saying Hamilton expected a future political crisis, possibly even a civil war, and in his mind, if he didn't satisfy public expectations of leadership, if he didn't defend his honor, he would be dishonored, cast off, and useless at the moment of crisis. So Hamilton, like Burr, was dueling to prove himself a worthy political leader. This was not an emotional, irrational decision. It resulted from a reasoned course of logic. 200 years ago today, on July 11th, Hamilton and Burr crossed the Hudson River to a dueling ground here in Weehawken, New Jersey. Both were accompanied by their seconds. Hamilton brought the dueling pistols, placed in a large sack, so that the boatmen rowing the boat could testify in court if they had to that they'd never seen any guns. Burr and his second, William Van Ness, arrived first and began to clear brush off of the dueling ground. Hamilton and his second arrived soon after and climbed up to the ground, leaving the doctor and the boatmen down below with their backs to the dueling ground so they could testify in court if they had to that they'd never seen a duel. As agreed upon previously by their seconds, Burr and Hamilton positioned themselves roughly 10 yards apart. Hamilton's second called out, present, and two shots rang out, one right after another. Burr's second later recalled that he thought Burr had been hit because his body jerked as the guns fire. Burr later explained his foot had slipped off a small stone. It was Hamilton who was hit. The bullet struck him in the abdomen, pierced his liver, lodged in his spine. At the bullet's impact, he rose up on his toes, spun to one side, and fell to the ground on his face. Burr was stunned and rushed towards Hamilton, but his second pulled him away so that Hamilton's doctor would not see him, enabling the doctor to testify in court, if he had to, that he'd never seen Burr on the dueling ground. Hamilton's second and his doctor, meanwhile, rushed to his side, only to hear Hamilton gasp, this is a mortal wound, doctor at which he fainted so deeply that his companions thought he had died. Hefting Hamilton's weight between them, they carried him to the boat, lay him across the bottom, and rowed back to New York, bringing Hamilton to the house of a friend. By this point, he was in agonizing pain. He had been shot in the spine, and he couldn't use any powerful painkillers because he had chronic digestive problems and he couldn't really handle strong medications. His friends darkened the room, his family was called, and a small crowd of people began to assemble at his bedside. Any duel that resulted in bloodshed was interesting, but when two men of such importance dueled, it was big news. The duel was common knowledge only hours after it took place. People were discussing it on street corners. Bulletins were posted on the side of the Tontine Coffee House announcing, quote, General Hamilton was shot by Colonel Burr this morning in a duel. The general is said to be mortally wounded. The city was soon in a frenzy. Burr, meanwhile, had returned to his home and was breakfasting with a friend 
waiting for word of Hamilton's condition. He had no idea of the public outcry brewing in Lower Manhattan. After all, New York City had seen many duels, even some fatalities, and so to Burr, this is a duel like any other, unfortunate, but unavoidable. Throughout that day and into the next, Hamilton suffered, surrounded by family and friends. He lost his composure only once when his children were brought to his bedside. At two o'clock in the afternoon of July 12th, after over a day of suffering, he died. Public outrage escalated over the next few days, and Burr's political enemies took advantage of the uproar to destroy their enemy. Newspapers invented wild rumors about Burr trying to prove that he had been a dishonorable duelist. They claimed that he had practiced shooting at a target beforehand, that he had laughed and snickered as he left the dueling ground, and my personal favorite rumor, he wore a coat made of silk, which of course everyone knows is bulletproof. <laughs> no. Burr had probably not intended to kill Hamilton. Like, remember, a duelist who kills his opponent is a failed duelist. And Burr's experience here reveals why. His enemies could and did portray him as a murderous killer who had viciously goaded Hamilton to fight, taken deliberate aim, and killed him. Burr was outraged, but he knew what was happening. His enemies were taking advantage of Hamilton's death to destroy his reputation and career. Though no political duelist in New York in the last decade had been charged with any crime, Burr was charged with murder in New Jersey and with violating anti-dueling laws in New York. Fearful of mob violence and hoping to escape criminal charges, he fled the state, as did his second, their close friends, the boatmen who rowed them across, and even their newspaper editor. <laughs> and Burr did not return to New York City for eight years in a sort of self-imposed exile, angry and defiant throughout. And friends later recall that throughout this period, Burr often referred to Hamilton as, my friend Hamilton whom I shot. <laughs> a gesture of defiance to those who had condemned him. Burr, like Hamilton, had done what he had deemed necessary to bolster his honor and salvage his public career. Both men knew the possible penalties for not fighting, dishonor, disgrace, and destroyed public careers. Given the circumstances, both men made the same choice, risking their lives rather than surrendering their honor. This was no irrational choice, no suicidal surrender or bloodthirsty attack. It was a rational attempt to grapple with the cultural, political, and personal realities of the time. Neither man was eager to duel. As one of Hamilton's friends said after his death, if we were truly brave, we should not accept a challenge, but we are all cowards. The real tragedy of the Burr-Hamilton duel is that Burr and Hamilton dueled out of fear, compelled by the mandates of politics and honor, dependent on public opinion for their political careers and sense of self. Burr and Hamilton dueled because they were afraid not to. Thank you very much.
to stimulate a larger economic recovery in this economically hard-hit region. This bill would not only give the Great Falls District the appropriate national recognition it would provide for the significant historic restoration and capital improvements needed to make the area a magnet for tourism and stimulate the local economy. Past studies have shown that redevelopment of the Great Falls would serve as a linchpin to a larger revitalization plan. Although it is included in the National Register of Historic Places, this is hardly sufficient for an area as unique and notable as the Great Falls. H.R. 3498 does not ask the Park Service to be responsible for the entire redevelopment. The bill will provide the funds needed to carry out this specialized assistance that is needed to protect and preserve the unique structures and waterways of the Great Falls. Areas of great need, such as the Middle and Lower Raceway, surface demolition and cleanup of an ATP site and restoration of other historic properties like the Ramatex Complex, the Hamilton Mill, and the Sandoz Complex. These require resources that cannot be mustered solely on the local or state level. H.R. 3498 has been carefully crafted to conform to the concerns of the National Natural Resources Committee and the National Park Service. It has the support of the Clinton administration, the entire New Jersey delegation, both on both sides of the aisle, the city of Patterson, the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, and the Patterson Historical Society. Let me conclude by again thanking Chairman Vento and Chairman Miller for their consideration and assistance. I also want to thank the staff of the committee as well as my own staff in perfecting this legislation. Their guidance has been indispensable in creating a quality piece of legislation. I also want to thank the many people in the National Park Service, both in Washington and in the regional office in Philadelphia, for their advice in how best to proceed with the work that needs to be done, and I look forward to working with them in the future to ensure that this unique natural and national resource is preserved for future generations. I urge support of H.R. 3498, and I yield back the balance of my time. Gentlemen's time is expired. Gentlemen from Utah. I'll speak I yield back the balance of my time. Gentlemen from Utah, I yield back the balance of my time. I urge support of this measure and yield back the balance of my time. Gentlemen from Minnesota, yields back his time. All time is expired. The question is, will the House suspend the rules and pass the bill H.R. 3498 as amended? So many as are in favor will vote aye. Those opposed, nay, in the opinion of the chair. Thank you. Gentlemen from Tennessee. I ask for the yeas and nays. Gentlemen from Tennessee request the yeas and nays. Members in favor of taking this vote by the yeas and nays will rise and remain standing until counted. Now, if a sufficient number having arisen, the yeas and nays are ordered pursuant to Clause 5 of Rule 1 of the chair's prior announcement. Further proceedings on this motion and on H.R. 3770 will be postponed until tomorrow. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.